Good morning. Welcome to Thy Strong Word. I'm Pastor A.J. Espinosa. We're reading the entire Bible together, one chapter at a time. We're looking at Isaiah 27 today. And this is an interesting, kind of tricky chapter. There's a few different parts to it. We already talked about this a little bit yesterday, how in the first part, you've got this talk about Leviathan punishing Leviathan by the strong power and sword of God. And so who is Leviathan? What is that about? You know, maybe you might be thinking, I thought I remembered something about Leviathan and Job. And so um, that seems to go with the first part, the part that we read yesterday. And then there's this second part that goes on and it's talking not about, you know, sea serpents or dragons, but talking about a vineyard. We've got Pastor Bernard Ross, pastor of Trinity Lutheran Church in Alma, Missouri. Welcome back, brother. We've got an interesting chapter in store for us today. Yes, absolutely. When they uh, asked if I would do it, I, I said yes, and then I looked at it and said, huh, okay, this will be a very interesting hour. Yes, great to be on, though. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, there's a lot going on, and because it's, it, there's just a few different parts to it, and um, it, and we talked about this a little bit yesterday too. These chapters in Isaiah are between these very cosmic, universal chapters, where it's kind of you know we we got the resurrection of the dead, which was the theme kind of the last two chapters, Isaiah 25, Isaiah 26. This very very universal look of God's restoration of the whole world dealing with evil on a universal scale and now in these in these chapters here we're kind of moving from that and we're getting a little bit closer back down to earth and actually towards the end here we're going to have mentioned some very specific places like the Euphrates River and the Brook of Egypt and we're kind of getting you know closer and closer back down to earth to talk about these specific things so that just means that there's just a mixed bag here in 27. Yeah, there is. I mean, it's the you have this uh, rather large chunk in the heart of Isaiah from 24 through this chapter, which does focus on the eschaton, the last things, and the culmination of all of God's promises, the telos of all creation. And then you you have to remember it's not disconnected from the rest of the book. It has right. historical roots. It has historical things that are being said and. It's it's a fun uh, it's a fun task to make those connections. I will say that. Yes, yes. Well, and I'm glad that we have you on today to to help make those connections. I, I can't remember which chapter it was right now, but when we had you on um, last time, we were looking at I think it was like in the teens or something like that. We were looking. At I think it was those. nine. Oh, is it nine? Okay. That was right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we were we were making those connections and talking about the peace of Hezekiah. That's right. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Um, and we were kind of trying to see how you know there there is like a, a local fulfillment of those things. Besides, of course, the one that we see um, more universally, as you said, in the eschaton, as Christians seeing the last things in the year of the Lord Jesus. Um, so you have you have both again here, I think, um, and so. It'll it'll be it'll be good. We'll kind of be doing something similar, but uh, we got Leviathan, which I know is um one one of the things that uh, is is that. Let's be honest. Is that why you picked twenty seven? I mean, th that was something that stood out to me. <laughs> well, it, it was uh, it was one of the more interesting aspects of the chapter. <laughs> I mean, I'd, I'd say of all the notes I made, almost a fourth of them are specific to Leviathan. I'm not going to oh, lie about good. that. 
Okay, well, then I, I really look forward to getting into this today and talking about it. Um, so as we do, would you say a prayer for us and for everybody listening today? Gladly, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. For God, our Father in heaven, we give you thanks that you have called us out of the darkness through the marvelous light of your Son, the Word made flesh. And we give you praise and thanks to this day for thy strong word which you have given to us through the prophet Isaiah. By your Holy Spirit, fill us and enlighten us this day that your word may feed us and guide us and that we may rejoice in all that you have revealed, even if it is beyond our understanding. In the name of your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever, we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, well, let's read this first verse, and then we can dive into uh, this this full quarter of your notes here um, <laughs> about Leviathan here and talk about, you know, how does this fit in with what we read in chapter 26, and, you know, how does this fit in? Because this isn't obviously the only place in the Bible where, where this figure comes up, so we can kind of talk about both the near and far context. But let's read this yeah. first verse here of Isaiah chapter 27. In that day... The Lord, with his hard and great and strong sword, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. All right. So, I mean, kind of a poetic description. You get the two-part description of it, fleeing, twisting. Uh, but, yeah. you know, who is Leviathan? What is Leviathan? And, and, and how does this fit in with what we read in 26? You know, that was the chapter we read with, um, it's got that resurrection line, the reversal of of the giving birth to wind, the, the lament and all of that. So how, how does that conclude that chapter? And then, you know, how does that fit in with what the rest of the Bible says about Leviathan? All right, that's a... Uh... That's about five or six questions in one, to be honest, but let's just get started. Uh, I'd say the first thing we should note about Leviathan is that it's one of those words like Sabbath, which is transliterated from the Hebrew to the English. It's not, yeah. it's not like a translation of something that's in the Hebrew sounds nothing alike to our ears. Leviathan is basically the same. Yeah. Whichever your language, I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me that it is portrayed scripturally as a proper name. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think so. There's, yeah, there's, so at least, uh, there's at least one place you in Genesis few... where, where, where it, there's, a, there's a form that kind of resembles it as a word, but, but here it's definitely oh. as, a, as a name. Yeah, and, and we we see the name Leviathan in a few places. We see it, of course, here in Isaiah, but the other places you see it tend to be in the Psalms and, of course, with Job. Mm -hmm. Job mentions it a couple times. Right. So the obvious question is that if this Leviathan is a specific uh, creature or if it's a specific uh, cosmological creature even, right. who is it? And uh, ba based on my notes, based on what I, where I was looking, uh, letting Scripture interpret Scripture and taking the whole Bible as a whole, my obvious answer would be Satan. Hmm. All right. So what, what, what makes you inclined to go that way? Well, uh, we know that uh, the reason for death, the reason why 
humans die, the reason why the resurrection from the dead is such this great promise that Isaiah has been recently discussing is because who appeared in the Garden of Eden? Well, Satan as in the form of a serpent, right? Mm. Mm-hmm. So you have this uh, this connection with a serpent right there, mm-hmm. and you have this uh, emphasis that this this isn't just uh, a sea snake. This isn't like a crate or even a whale. I mean, this is described as the dragon that is in the sea. Right. And this connection between the dragon and the sea, I mean, we see this very clearly shown in the book of Revelation, where you have Satan quite accurately described as the dragon, the ancient serpent called the devil and Satan. That's in Revelation 20. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, and he is the great dragon, uh, the red one from Revelation 12 and 13, who raises the beast or the Antichrist out of the sea to do his work of attacking and slaying God's people. Mm-hmm. So, so certainly there's other passages in Scripture that seem to associate, at the very least, um, temptation and evil, um, if not Satan by name, um, with like these serpent-like figures or dragon-like um, figures. This, I suppose the obvious question is, okay, but if Satan's an angel, why is it being described as a sea serpent here? Well, that is an excellent question, and I wish I had a better answer for you than I'm not sure. <laughs> I know that he is described in multiple places as a dragon or a serpent. Um, I, I know that Satan, as a fallen angel, certainly can and does masquerade as an angel of light, as Paul tells us in Second Corinthians. Right. But but I think one of the connections we should make here is that uh, Isaiah he is speaking to the ancient Hebrews. Mm-hmm. He's speaking to God's people who were in a specific time and place, and we have to try to understand how they would see things through their eyes. Right. And I think that might illustrate how the prophets speak. I mean, they weren't they weren't going above and beyond their heads in the hopes that the Hebrews might, you know, understand a word or two. They were using phrases and imagery that mm-hmm. the, the Hebrews of Isaiah's time would have been able to understand. Right, right. And so when we when we consider that to these ancient Hebrews, the sea, the ocean was this huge, powerful, terrifying thing. I mean, right. even even at the height of their power, the Hebrew kings or the Israelite kings would have their ships staffed by those merchants from Tyre. I mean, they there wouldn't be a whole lot of Hebrews out on the boats. I mean, they, they could mm-hmm. barely handle the sea of galilee right. and let's be honest that's a lake right <laughs> yeah that's good that's a good point yeah no I, I think that those are all really good points you know there's obviously a pretty big gap between you know us here in 2019 um and then you know the time of isaiah you know which we've talked about you know kind of like on uh, you know straddling like you know 700 years before christ um ish you know around that time and so it's a, it's a big gap so obviously we have to have some humility and say well you know we can't be a hundred percent certain um, but that being said i think you're i think you're very right that there are these associations um in in the hebrew mind you might kind of put it that way 
uh, as you were describing, this is, this is language that they were meant to understand. There are kind of these connections between the sea and chaos, and between even um, evil and serpents, and particularly, I would say, um, really angels and serpents even, because it's an interesting thing. We kind of imagine angels in a very particular way in in the Western modern context, right? Like if I say cherub, you think of like a fat naked baby with wings, right? And a little chubby, little chubby baby with chubby cheeks and little bitty wings. And that's right. You know, that's what you think. Thank of when, all those when, Renaissance artists for that. Exa- right? exa- exactly. Right. You know, and, and, and if I say, you know, Seraph, like maybe you think of, um, maybe it's not the fat baby, but maybe it's just like, you think of like a man, maybe with just maybe more wings than usual. If I say angel, you, you tend to think of, Maybe like um, it's something that kind of looks like 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 I don't know. I was just at Disneyland the other day, so kind of something that vaguely looks like you know Pinocchio's uh, you know uh, fairy that visits him, right? You know, yeah, <laughs> a, a beautiful woman with uh, yeah, right. uh, robes and yeah. may, maybe wings like a stork, and right. You know. That's right. Yeah. So so that's that's what you imagine. But the thing is, like, you have to ask yourself, like, what what did the Hebrews actually imagine when you said the word angel, right? And it's it's an interesting thing because, and I think we maybe have talked about this before even. But when you when you look at the word seraph, we we saw this earlier in a couple of places here in Isaiah. Um, but that word seraph is the same word that's used for like a venomous serpent of some kind. Mm-hmm. And, and so there's actually a couple different places that you know like make you think maybe the right way to kind of imagine these angels from the Hebrew perspective anyway is is maybe not like a fat baby or like a you know fairy godmother or something like that, but maybe something that actually kind of looks like a dragon or a serpent. Um, and if at least at least the, for the seraphim or at least some of these angels anyway, maybe not all of them, but some of them. And if that's the right way to kind of imagine um, these spiritual beings, because we got to remember that too. I mean, if we're talking about spiritual beings, and strictly speaking, they don't necessarily have bodies as much as they have um, forms that kind of represent what they are like, right? then that makes a lot of sense then to say, huh, okay, so there are some, you know, kind of serpent-like um, angels, you know, that are that are good and they're saying holy, 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 and they have, you know, six wings and they're around the throne of God. But there's other ones that are not so good, um, including this one that you that you mentioned, um, namely Satan even. Um, and, and so that... It's very interesting, but that makes, I think, a kind of a lot of sense of it. Then when you consider that uh, you mentioned, right, that in this term, what is it here? The term is Nahash, right? That's the term that we actually have in Genesis describing that serpent in the center of the garden, right? Like a, like a mischievous um, angel almost, you know, like uh, trying to trick Adam and Eve. And so anyways, um, you know, and, and, you know, there's, there's people who argue about these things. But to me, I suppose that the takeaway is that there, there are good reasons to kind of associate these things with angels. And it makes sense then when in the context of chapter 26, what is what does God say through the prophet Isaiah, right? He says there, what was it in verse, um, trying to remember the verse here, he talks about punishing heaven and earth. Um, we just looked at that. So Isaiah, if we turn back, we were looking at Isaiah 27 today, but if you look at Isaiah, um, oh yeah, actually, actually, yeah, this actually goes back to chapter 24, even a couple of chapters before that, but it's part of the same continuing theme when it says, 
in 24 verse this is 21 on that day the lord will punish the host of heaven in heaven <laughs> and the kings of the earth on the earth you know, so hang on the host of heaven who who are who are that what's that well those are the angels he's not talking about punishing stars <laughs> he's talking no. about puni- he's talking about punishing angels um, and so that actually really fits then, you know, he talks about punishing the angels. Well, which angels? Well, these serpent-like angels, including this one that's described as Leviathan. Yeah, the ones who, ones who rebelled. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and so, you know, and the, the ones who, who uh, revel in chaos, right, you know, describing the sea, right, as a metaphor for that. Cause, and that's an interesting thing to consider, too, that, um, you know, in Genesis 1, you know, what, what do you have um, in, in the beginning? It's not a sea, strictly speaking, right? It says that God created the sea on on day three, right? Um, yeah. Or I suppose day, day two, but um, depending on how you look at it. Um, but but the thing is, at first, it's described as kind of a watery chaos, right? It's, it's kind of wet, even if it's not quite a truly full-formed sea, right? Yeah, you have this. You have a spirit hovering over the face of the waters and darkness mm-hmm. over the face of the deep. I mean, you, you have this chaotic primordial ocean. Right. Right. Exa- exactly. Right. It's, it's, it's not, you know, it's not given it, it's not gathered um, into one place. I mean, he, God gives it the name, right? Seas um, on, on day, what is it? It's day three, right? Um, so it's not until you actually get that name that it's like a true, fully formed like thing of of God. But um, it it is sort of you know watery is a good way of talking about chaos, right? You can't like wrap your you can't grab water, <laughs> right? It just goes through your fingers. There, there, there's yeah. no form. If you pour it into one vessel or another, it takes whatever shape it is. So um, it's just it's a very good way of just describing. Um, like a chaotic spiritual being that opposes God's people, and that influences the peoples of the world. Because we've talked about this a little bit, but the idea is that you know, as we saw in Daniel when we were looking at that, um, you know, about a month ago, there are these spiritual powers, these angels that kind of stand behind the, the kings of the earth, the nations of the earth, and so all these negative influences on Israel and these oppressors against Israel—they're not just men. But they're they're angels who are in a sense leading the charge. Well, yeah, and even um, even in the New Testament, I mean, in First Corinthians, I believe it's ten. What does Saint Paul say about not uh, not participating in the sacrifice of the pagans? Well, the pagan gods are nothing, but behind those pagan gods, those sacrifices are being made to who? Demons, right? Right. Yeah, angels right. who have rebelled. So, I mean. Uh, it, it's really tempting to look back at some of these ancient religions where they would, you know, like later on in chapter 27, you have the destruction of the Asherim, the Asherah poles. And mm-hmm. it, it's really tempting to think, oh, those silly pagans, you know, they they believed in talking animals and they sacrificed to bulls, they had special animals and all that. Well, we, we have to remember that the same evil forces that were responsible for the fall of mankind in the beginning, uh, they didn't disappear. They, they've been quite active in the ancient world. I mean, the, the these pagan religions we think of, like the Pantheon of Greece or ancient Egypt or uh, Assyria or whatnot, there were 
spiritual forces of evil behind these religions. I mean, they were propagating them, and for a long time, they were quite successful. Right. You know, that, that, that's a good point. I mean, we, we uh, again, to humility, right, just in the same way that we can't be, you know, 100% sure exactly, you know, how a Hebrew exactly imagined all this stuff 2,700 years ago. We, we do also have to have the, the humility of saying, yeah, and, and so, you know, when they were practicing, you know, all these, you know, these polytheistic pagan religions, it's it's not as if there was nothing behind it all. It's not as if it was just just all in their heads, like um, in, in a kind of dismissive way that we could say that anyway, but that there was something real to it, um, even if it was mistaking the creation for the creator. But yeah, yeah th- those are some very helpful thoughts to kind of, you know, just conclude what we started yesterday in, in chapter 26. And so seeing that it's just that, you know, continuation, you know, 24, 25, 26, that judgment of God against both the nations and the spiritual forces behind them, the spiritual forces that are associated with chaos, temptation, and, and Satan. And then we turn in verse 2, different different thing. Um, it, it uses the same introduction, you know, in that day. So there's a, there's a connection of some kind, but... Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but still uh, a new new image it's a vineyard now it, no 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 sea serpents here um but still what are we to make of this and how does it follow let's let's go ahead and read before the break here uh, we have a couple minutes let's go ahead and read the first few verses and we can get started with this uh, second section in Isaiah 27 all right in that day a pleasant vineyard sing of it i the lord am its keeper Every moment I water it, lest anyone punish it. I keep it night and day. I have no wrath. Would that I had thorns and briars to battle. I would march against them. I would burn them up together. Or let them lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. Let them make peace with me. All right, I'll just pause right there. Um, This is... There's a couple of parts here in this in this second section that are just hard to make plain sense of. So okay. you know, like how how do you make plain sense of especially verses four and five here? So I mean, it seems like we've transitioned to God talking about His vineyard. We saw this before back, and I think it was Isaiah chapter five talking about God having a vineyard that. Um, yeah, that sounds right. Right, he produce in the vineyard. He plants his vineyard. He takes care of it, you know, um, keeps it, and then it, it produces wild grapes instead of instead of the grapes that he um, planted. Right, and so he, you know, it says like he lets it get overrun with briars and all this stuff. So, okay, so what is he saying here about this vineyard? Well, the. this vineyard is uh, it's the vineyard as it should be, not as it is, and it's the vineyard. Is- Vineyard as it will be one day, because mm. if you if you look through the scriptures, you have this consistent imagery of Israel as a vineyard, but it's not a very good vineyard. Mm. It's a vineyard that's overgrown. It's a vineyard that's wild. It's a vineyard where to take Jesus's parables in like Matthew twenty one, Mark twelve, for instance. It's the vineyard where the tenants kill the servants and eventually the son of the vineyard owner. Mm-hmm. So throughout the scriptures, you have this horrible vineyard that is slated for destruction. Its residents need to be, you know, destroyed because of how evil and wicked they are. You have a rebellious vineyard. And yet, 
we have that that key phrase in that day. I mean, that is a technical term describing, you know, the eschaton. This is what's to come. This is the culmination of history, right? And so we have this description of the vineyard as it was always meant to be and one day will achieve. We have a vineyard described in completely beautiful, positive, almost Edenic terms. I mean, you have the Lord keeping the vineyard, watering it at every moment. He does not let anyone punish it, so there's no violence against his vineyard. He keeps it night and day, and he has no wrath. I mean, this is very different from Christ during Holy Week, speaking of the vineyard of Israel having punishment headed its way because its tenants killed the servants and eventually would kill the son of the owner. Right. So, so there's there's a couple of things to reconcile, right? In terms of the the picture of the the vineyard as it is and as it should be, and and how do those things mesh here? We have to. I, I want to talk more about that. We got to go into a break here, but everybody, hang on. We're looking at Isaiah chapter 27, and we'll be right back on Thy Strong Word. Are you the type of person who loves their community and wants it to be the best it can be? Now it's easier than ever to do your part. Go to RecycleMo.com to see just how easy it is to recycle the right way. Or if you already recycle and want to be as efficient as possible, RecycleMo.com can tell you what should and should not be recycled in your area. Become part of the clean recycling movement today. It's the right thing to do. Sponsored by the Missouri Department of Natural Resources. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. The prophet Isaiah chapter 55 verses 10 and 11. Begin and conclude your day with the word that accomplishes the purposes for which it is sent. Morning prayer at 7 a.m. and evening prayer at 5 p.m. Weekdays on KFUO. Christ for you anytime, anywhere. The broadcasts of morning prayer and evening prayer are underwritten by Lutherans for Life. first two petitions of the Lord's Prayer are, Hallowed be thy name, and thy kingdom come. What do these petitions have to do with the first and second commandments? Wednesday on Issues Etc., we'll discuss Jesus' high priestly prayer and the first and second petitions of the Lord's Prayer with Pastor Peter Bender of the Concordia Catechetical Academy. Issues Etc., live weekday afternoons from 3 to 5 on KFUO. 
Welcome back, everybody, to Thy Strong Word. I'm Pastor A.J. Espinosa. We're joined today by Pastor Bernard Ross, pastor of Trinity Lutheran Church in Alma, Missouri. We're looking at Isaiah 27. These two parts, you know, the first verse there gave us the conclusion to 27, that expression of God judging the spiritual forces that are behind the earthly ones uh, in, in this in this oracle of God announcing judgment against the forces of evil and destroying death. And then in verse 2, this new image of a vineyard, very different kind of image. And, and trying, to, trying to figure out here, is this is this the vineyard that is, that will be both? That That's kind of the confusing thing about the language here. If you have a question for us and you're listening live, I do invite you to call in with a question or a comment. Any observations are welcome as well on this chapter of Isaiah 27 here. 314-821-0850. If you're in St. Louis, elsewhere, you can call 1-800-730-2727. Or you can always send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. So, right. So I, I think that you, you, were, you were right, brother, that we have... We have a couple different places, maybe several really, um, different places, even in the New Testament, where vineyards are talked about um, in terms of kind of an image of, of God's people in not a very positive light, that it's, you know, God God plants it, but then it's like, what happened to it? You know, kind of like Eden, right? You know, he plants Eden, and then it's like, when Adam takes over, it's like, ah, oh no, what happened, right? So um, there, there, there seems to be this, this sort of image um you know, and so here there is there is something, you know, when you read it, it sounds positive. Um, you know, like I have no wrath, I, I water it every moment, right? So that stuff sounds very, very good. And and yet also, I mean, like what is what is going on with verse four though? Would that I had thorns and briars to battle, I would march against them, I would burn them up together let them make peace with me. I mean, the phrase even let them make peace with me, that seems to suggest then that they're not at peace with me. And who is, who is they? <laughs> so, so like what's, what's going on there? Like who, who's the battle and, and the lack of peace and what, what's going on? Well, there's uh, I, I would say that probably the most uh, natural way to read this, I mean, you mentioned earlier when Isaiah 5, same same prophet, through whom the Lord said that he planted up a vineyard, he took care, good care of it, and yet instead of producing good fruit, there were uh, thorns and briars. You know, you have, th- you have things that were not supposed to be there that took over. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, and so, so the natural way to read that is that, okay, we're looking at a vineyard where those things have been... Uh, whether you want to say they're expunged, like they were there, but they were, you know, ripped out and burned, and they're just not there anymore, or whether they never appeared, I, I would say that this is uh, this is an imagery where you have a restored vineyard, where the the briars and the thorns from earlier in the vineyard, as Isaiah described, that have been removed. But it is interesting, you have the Lord saying, would that I had thorns and briars to battle. You almost, you almost hear this desire that, you know, he, he wants to destroy something. He wants to fight, <laughs> right. and there's nothing to fight. 
Yeah. Well, that's that's interesting. Yeah. Is it? You know, he. It's almost like expressing a desire to. Fight. I mean, is it because he wants to fight? Because it's like, oh man, there's just nothing to fight anymore. Because uh, it's everything's so peaceful. I mean, um, that that could be one kind of a very colorful way of expressing peace. But but then again, like we were saying, you know, let them make peace with me. It's like there's something that's not at peace here, right? So so yeah. So what 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 do we make of this? And um, I think that part of the problem is that when you look at the Hebrew, the Hebrew itself is is kind of challenging. Um, it's it's not kind of your anyway your most typical way of expressing some of this stuff. And so if you look at other translations, which can be very a very helpful exercise. I mean, I don't I don't suggest to anybody that you just you know, read every passage like five times over um, every day. That's with five different translations. That's just going to get confusing. But when you when you come across these passages and you're like, this just doesn't really make sense. It sometimes is helpful to consult a different translation just to see if there's something that kind of can click for you. And so, um, in a different translation that I have here, th- this is this is how just these little bits go anyway. Like in verses um, verses three through five, it says here. I, Yahweh, am its guardian. I water it all the time, lest any harm come to it. I hold no grudge against it. If it gives me thorns and weeds, I'll wage war against it. Burn it all up. So let it cling to me for protection. Let it make peace with me. Let it make peace with me. And, um, you know, I, I, I like the thing I like about that translation is it kind of seems to make sense of some of these um, words that are thrown in here, like wood and ore, that... That maybe the yeah. idea is God is kind of giving this this vineyard every opportunity. He's, he's like, you know, I'm watering it still, right? I, I don't have any grudges against it. Like, okay, vineyard, if you want to, like, stop producing thorns and weeds and instead come to make peace with me, I'll give you peace, right? Like, like God is kind of, if I can just kind of keep going on this sort of, like, a, you know, kind of a botanical metaphor here. He's extending the olive oh, branch, right? Right, <laughs> he's extending the olive branch, and it's like, okay, vineyard, you want to like behave now, right? So I, I think that that might be why it's the mixed bag that it, it's kind of like before there there was the the briars and the wild grapes growing there before, but there's but there seems to be a change going on in this vineyard. Maybe there's something good left in it still, and so we're kind of at a at a turning point. And, and maybe that's maybe that makes sense of it. What, what do you think? Well, especially since the following chapters, or sorry, the following verses describe uh, Jacob as taking root, blossoming, and putting forth shoots and producing fruit that fills the whole world. I think uh, I think that makes sense. That when you have in verse four, let them make peace with me. Well, the Lord's speaking of those. Uh, thorns and briars, that they have the option, or the opportunity, rather, to repent and to belong in the vineyard. Otherwise, there's no quarter to be given. Right, right. No, And that sounds a lot like, you know, John the Baptist. We've mentioned him a couple times, that this language of remnant, this language of, you know, like a stump, um, or the language of you know here's God with his you know um, with his uh, you know, on the threshing floor with his winnowing fork right 
um, that that kind of language is very similar in, in terms of, um, well, also interesting too, that John uses the Vipers language as well. <laughs> he actually puts yeah. both those, those uh, metaphors side by side in the same way Isaiah does here, doesn't he? Um, but it, it's kind of the turning point of repentance sort of language, bearing the fruit in keeping with repentance, as John the Baptist put it. So, so yeah, like it's, you know, so here, here's the opportunity for repentance. And if you take it, then, well, in that day to come, you know, there'll, Jacob will take root and there'll be a blossom and a fruit for the whole world. Um, and if, and if you don't, like you said, it's, it's just fire. And if you don't, uh, I will march against them. I will burn them up together. You, you have in these verses, uh, God's holiness and all of its glory being put forth, that he wants to save, he wants to have mercy, that is who Yahweh truly is. He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And yet, if you stubbornly refuse his love and his mercy, uh, his, he will do his alien work and he will give you precisely what you have asked for. Right, exactly. Uh, so so yeah so maybe you know maybe looking at an alternate translation can help sometimes um in here it's not like the ESV is like really far off i just think that perhaps you know the way to read it is it's kind of less would that i had thorns and briars to battle and maybe like kind of like you know should i have thorns and briars to battle i'll march against them you know you know kind of like kind of more of a condition you know should it should that happen right um then so it's kind of this uh turning point well let's go ahead and read though we we already started to read verse six already, but let, let's go ahead and read uh, this next portion here, beginning in verse six, um, and just look out here. There's, I'm just going to call it out now. In in verse verse seven here, this is like my Dr. Seuss moment. Um, it, it feels like that. <laughs> I've, I've, been, I've been reading um, Green Eggs and Ham to my my daughter Ellie, and and it kind of reminds me of you know chicks with bricks, chicks with blocks, chicks with bricks and blocks and clocks, and it's just kind of like it just goes on like a tongue twister. But <clears throat> I'm going to try to not stumble. So here we go, uh, beginning in verse six. In days to come, Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. Has he struck them as he struck those who struck them? Or have they been slain as their slayers were slain? Measure by measure by exile you contended with them. He removed them with his fierce breath in the day of the east wind. Therefore, by this, the guilt of Jacob will be atoned for, and this will be the full fruit of the removal of his sin, when he makes all the stones of the altars like chalk stones crushed to pieces. No asherim or incense altars will remain standing, for the fortified city is solitary, a habitation deserted and forsaken like the wilderness. There the calf grazes, there it lies down and strips its branches. When its bows are dry, they are broken. Women come and make a fire of them, for this is a people without discernment. Therefore, he who made them will not have compassion on them. He who formed them will show them no favor. That's a lot to chew on. Yeah, it, it certainly is. And so, so the, the the thing that that makes that makes it that stands out to me in terms of trying to anchor this language onto some you know history point to kind of tether this and say, okay, maybe that'll help us kind of decode this here is it talks about the east wind um mm -hmm. and you know and actually maybe in some ways it just you just have to kind of go ahead and read the last two verses too because i mean like it, it kind of actually decodes itself a little bit 
but just just hang on to that. It mentions this this east wind thing, this you know this this east wind blowing and 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 striking the strikers and slaying the slayers, <laughs> right? There there's the the fun kind of tongue twister part. But so yeah, this is what it says in the last few verses. In that day, from the river Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, the Lord will thresh out the grain, and you will be gleaned one by one, O people of Israel. And in that day, a great trumpet will be blown, and those who were lost in the land of Assyria and those who were driven out to the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain at Jerusalem. Okay, so so there it, it seems like, oh, okay, we're talking about some real historical places here. We're talking about, you know, I mean, it, it's very interesting the way just it pairs it east and west, right? Euphrates, Brook of Egypt, Assyria, Egypt. And we've seen that pair before. It was back in, oh, goodness, where was it now? I think it was at the end of, wasn't it, 20, it was like 22 or 23. It might have been, uh, let me see here. We were looking, um, is it 24? Where... It was it was one of those chapters where we had this kind of image of both east and west, and we had the Egypt image of a second Passover, and he was talking about striking the Nile so that there would be a path for his people to come through on dry land, and they would be coming on a highway both from Egypt and from Assyria, and and we mm-hmm. we connected that to actually here there it might be. It might have been earlier back in... Okay, there it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was actually back in chapter 19 already, um, the, the oracle concerning Egypt. And so um, you, you saw that kind of, you know, Egypt and Assyria thing. And we connected that to the very, you know, uh, well-understood historical event at, by this point in Isaiah of the siege of Jerusalem, that, you know, when, once the siege is broken, that's a defeat for Assyria, and it's an opportunity then for the people of Israel that have been scattered in Sennacherib's attack to come on back home and come on back to Jerusalem, and, you know, uh-huh. that even the people from the north would be able to, to worship. And we talked about that, you and I, um, back in connection to Isaiah 9, that even there were some, there were some remnants, even in the north, that went down and worshipped with Hezekiah. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, <clears throat> anytime you can take this uh, poetic uh, imagery of the prophets and anchor it to history, I mean, you're, it's always going to make things a whole lot uh, more clear. And that, that, I think that's what's going on here. I mean, you, you read through here, you have numerous historical markers that to uh, a Hebrew 2,700 years ago would make uh, plenty of sense. I mean, guilt of Jacob, okay, you're talking about the guilt of the nation. Mm-hmm. You had, They knew what the Asherim were, the incense altars, they knew what all those were. Uh, you have this this description of a fortified city being destroyed, and that we look throughout uh, these other parts of Isaiah, and he's talking about Babylon. He's talking mm-hmm. about that proto uh, prototypical enemy of God's people. Right. And then, yeah, you have the Euphrates, you have the Wadi of Egypt, you have this idea that you have you have the Lord describing a specific place, this is what will happen, and in a greater way, because this is talking about in that day, this is the prototype for what the whole world will experience when the time comes. 
Right, right. So yeah, and and thanks for for making that connection as well. So when we understand the historical context, that'll help us to understand what what the kind of global universal context is then. And I, I appreciate that you brought our attention back to this part about the guilt of Jacob. Um, you know, because okay, so you had this in verse eight, this description of, you know, he removed them from with his fierce breath in the day of the east wind. Okay. So, you know, God brings this east wind, AKA the Assyrians to come and deal with his, his vineyard that was very mixed. It had some good in it, but it also just had, you know, briars and wild grapes, right? So we're kind of connecting all these different pieces in, in Isaiah together, describing this this work of God, which is both judgment against his people, right? Where, where it kind of talks about, you know, this is a people without discernment, therefore he who made them will not have compassion on them, right? Uh, but on the other hand, it, it's also, you know, God purifying and refining his people and um, turning back the siege, breaking the siege. And, you know, that, that's kind of a way of describing actually the briars of Assyria being broken um, once they have come in there. So so that kind of, okay, okay, that makes sense. But it's interesting that in verse 9, that talks about the guilt of Jacob being atoned for, um, talking about, you know, these Asherim and incense altars being destroyed. So how does that correspond to this change around the time of the siege of Jerusalem? What was going on to you know, destroy the stones on the altars like like chalk stones and getting rid of the incense altars? What was going on? Well, uh, throughout the Old Testament, when we hear of the Asherim, the incense altars, the stone altars, and so on, uh, the, the term that tends to get used the most in the scriptures are the high places. Mm-hmm. And th- this is something that... Um, Jacob, the people of Israel, this has been their guilt and a millstone around their neck for centuries at this point. Right. We go all the way back to Solomon, who, you know, had, you know, way too many wives that he needed. Right. But part of his love for his, you know, a thousand wives and concubines was that they were able to import their foreign gods. He would build uh, worship sites for them and... This was the origin of the high places. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, these were, this was a standard pagan practice, and uh, this guilt never went away. I mean, in the years after Solomon, of course, things went really bad in Israel right off the bat. The pagan right. high places were all over the place. Mm-hmm. But even in Judah, you read through, and until you get to Hezekiah, Exactly. Even the good kings of Judah, they're describing their good reigns, they were faithful, they walked in the ways of David, but the high places were not removed. Right. And, and this becomes a tragic refrain over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's Hezekiah who finally destroys the high places. Right, exactly. So in, in the same way that we've, we've seen that this moment of the siege is connected to Hezekiah and his own repentance, um, you know, for the part that he played, um, or at least was tempted to play in, um, you know, his, his father's uh, plan to go and side with Egypt in the midst of all of this, this craziness, right? Um, he, we know that he does repent and that he, along with him, you know, brings the people of Israel and Judah to repent as they turn away from idolatry. And Hezekiah brings in these reforms, and he does, in fact, destroy the Asherim and the stones of the, of the, 
of the altars and the high places and all the rest of it. He actually gets rid of those things. Um, and it's interesting. You know, we, we've been talking about serpents here, but I'm just, I just recall it was back in Isaiah 14, right? That we actually had Hezekiah called a seraph, right? A flying, a flying fiery serpent. It was back in 14 in verse 29. Rejoice not, O Philistia, all of you, that the rod that struck you is broken, for from the serpent's root will come forth an adder, and its fruit will be a flying, fiery serpent. Um, so that's just, it's interesting how this, um, I don't know what, the fruit and the serpents kind of just keep coming back together as a pair all over the Bible. It's just like... Like you know, poetry, you, it rhymes. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, a fruit and a serpent. They're just... They're here, they're gonna they're gonna go together here, um, and, and so, uh, up and up until the new heavens and the new earth, then you have the fruit, but there's no serpent mentioned. Yeah, so. well, I mean, what, what's in, what's interesting, of course, is that like the Lord Himself is lifted up like a serpent, right? Um, yeah. And so, and some, and so isn't that interesting that this, you know, this serpent language both represents the good King Hezekiah, right, and also yeah. the, the angels, the messengers of God. And so, in some sense, the Lord Jesus is likened to a serpent because he's the perfect messenger of God, as as the letter to the Hebrews explains. And he's also the perfect Messiah, as you know, the Gospels just um, proclaim up and down that he is the true King. That's even better than David, better than Solomon, better than Hezekiah. Um, so, yeah. I mean, it's, 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 it's very interesting that in some ways, like Jesus himself, our Lord is described with kind of like a serpentine kind of, um, metaphor sometimes. Well, I mean, that given, given that the church from ancient times has recognized that the angel of the Lord of the Old Testament was the pre-incarnate Christ, I think we can make that connection even stronger. I think it makes perfect yeah. sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Well, it reminds me, you know, back back at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, we we had that in the chapel of St. Timothy and St. Titus that we had that that serpentine cross at the front, and there was uh, mm-hmm. there's something there's something very poetic about about seeing that. Um, it was just it was just kind of looked like two squiggles. It was kind of abstract a little bit. It wasn't like a full on snake, right? But <laughs> but um, just kind of. Uh, seeing that there, there's kind of that imagery and that kind of that kind of poetic background, but so so certainly then there is this actual historical event that takes place with Hezekiah, um, and isn't it interesting that the way it describes this as atonement? Right, it says the guilt of Jacob will be atoned for by this, namely what um, that the that there is this full fruit of the removal. Um, of sin and the destruction of these altars and things. So atonement is described as, it, it seems like, turning away from the sin and doing better and destroying the bad things. Atonement is described in, in these active terms of kind of making up for what you did wrong. Um, and in some ways, as, we've, as we'll see elsewhere in Isaiah, this atonement is described as the suffering that you, that you did too. So atonement in this kind of kind of literal physical sense is described as, you know, you, you, you suffered for what you did and then you did, you know, kind of this, this hard work um, to do better, right? There's something kind of passive and inactive about it, atonement, right? But of course, when we think of atonement, we don't think of, um, we don't think of you know, that, that we suffer um, or that we, we do good things to make up for it. We, we think of Christ. And we don't believe so. in penance. We, we don't have to try to, we, we don't have to show by our actions and our suffering and our denials of how sorry we truly are. 
Right. So, so, and, and so oh. I think there, there's the kind of the connection there that you get, you know, here's this Hezekiah who is leading uh, the people um, in terms of bringing, you know, bringing them through the suffering that they have done and leading them into these good works um, in, in a kind of, kind of physical temporal atonement. Um, but it's the true Hezekiah, our Lord Jesus, as we've been talking about, who gives us true atonement, spiritual atonement, not just the temporal atonement, but a spiritual atonement for sin because of his uh, passive and active obedience, because of his suffering that he did in our place, and also his good work, which um, he did in his earthly ministry, and which he does still today through his church because he is alive in us. Yeah, he is the head. We are, we are the body. Right. Right. No, exactly. And so, and so you, you see this kind of as foreshadowing the atoning work of, of Christ as the Messiah here that, I mean, this is, this is the work of the church that the church, um, you know, crushes the stone altars and, and the chalk stone to pieces. And, um, it, and it's it, the, historically, sometimes that happens more literally than others. <laughs> well, it is a little bit true, isn't it? Um, there is that yeah. famous story of the Christian missionary who went up north and there was Thor's tree. Yeah. And he picks up an axe and says, I'm going to show you how uh, real this Thor of yours is. And not, not, not saying to any of our listeners that's how you should uh, approach your non-Christian neighbors, but, you right. know, sometimes, sometimes the church... Uh, goes to pagan altars and, you know, crush chalk stones to pieces and cut down a share of poles and whatnot. Right. Well, and I think usually it it happens by means of uh, preaching the gospel. Exactly. All over the world today, you have the gospel being preached in places like Africa and Asia, and Mm -hmm. you have people who turn their back on their pagan upbringing because they hear the gospel, they recognize the truth, they become those who go from having no discernment to those whose discernment is genuine because now they know the true God. They know the true Lord of heaven and earth. That's, that's, and exactly, so, that's exactly right. So they themselves end up smashing those altars and burning those old books and things like that in the way that we saw yeah, in Acts absolutely. because they have heard the gospel and they've been changed and they've been transformed by the Messiah. So... Thank you so much, brother. Um, I really appreciate also just like the work at the beginning of the hour, helping us to make those connections and put the pieces together with Leviathan. Looking forward to having you on again real soon. Everybody, that was Pastor Bernard Ross, pastor of Trinity Lutheran Church in Alma, Missouri. Thanks for tuning in. We're going to be looking at Isaiah 28 um, tomorrow. I think we have a psalm in store for you guys. But until next time, everybody, check out our Underwriters of the Lutheran Heritage Foundation, lhfmissions.org. Peace. You gift safe, secure, and easily online at kfuo.org. Thank you for listening and supporting Thy Strong Word.